Good morning. How are we doing? Good. It's beautiful out, isn't it? Why are you here? It's uh, a valid question. So there, that whole like in like a lion, out like a lamb thing. Did I get that right? It's not the other one. Yeah. Uh, I think this year it's kind of like in like a passive aggressive lion and out like a very cantankerous crabby sheep. Uh, so like spring uh, up into forest. So this is our first spring here. And uh, so there's this little river. Well, come on, let's be honest. It's a creek. It's a creek, guys. Yahara River. That's kind of a joke. It's a creek. Uh, we call it the mighty Yahara. But it's just it's this little, you know, tiny river that goes not far from our house. We can kind of walk down there. It takes two minutes. Uh, but like crazy uh, with all the snow melting, it just like became this force of nature and it actually became really scary. So th- this is kind of the aftermath. I took these uh, really early yesterday morning. Everything is frozen. It was actually very beautiful, but it was scary, you guys. And I don't know if you encountered water where you are, uh, but we had people calling us like, are you guys okay? We're fine. Um, but some in our community weren't weren't really so fortunate. Um, we actually, like, this is someone who, we don't know, but they live not far from us. And um, on Friday night in the news, she was describing just the feeling of fear as the water was rising and, and kind of neighborhoods were affected. And, and this woman, with tears in her eyes, was ex- like explaining how her neighbors came over to her house. And even though the waters were rising on their property and, and threatening to get into their house, like they brought their pump to her property to protect her house. And she said, this is kind of the ray of sunshine in all of this, is for like neighbors helping neighbors. And I thought that was really cool, um, really a beautiful thing. And, and actually, what we're talking about today is, is love. Love. It's kind of what we're expected to talk about in church. Uh, so surprise, we're talking about love today. You're like, oh my gosh. But I think when we talk about love, we have this danger because because that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So we have all these different categories for love. So we've, I mean, you can say, I love pretty much anything, waffles, or bacon, or Star Wars, or whatever. Uh, What does that mean? You know, or we can talk about love as like finding this soulmate and having this lifelong connection with someone, and is that love? Well, maybe yes and no. like, what are those about when you boil them down? They're, they're about me getting an experience that makes me feel fulfilled and happy. But biblical love, this agape neighborly love, and, and this example, actually, is getting at something far more profound, um, something we're just gonna call boundless love. Uh, so do me a favor, turn to Romans chapter 12, verse nine. I just want to highlight this one thing and then we'll back up a little bit and talk about what we're going to talk about. Uh, Romans 12, verse 9. Paul starts out this, this kind of treatment on Christian love by saying this, love must be sincere. Why would he say love must be sincere? Well, I guess because apparently what often looks like love is actually not love. Like we are, human beings are ingenious at counterfeiting love. We can get really busy and do a lot of things 
look like love that aren't actually love. And so this is just a statement we're going to make right at the beginning, and we'll unpack this for the rest of our time. It's that boundless love is not doing acts of love. It's about becoming a loving person. It's not about doing acts of love. It's about becoming a loving person. And they're very, very different things. Because boundless love is, is not something we initiate. It can only be a response that, that we live out. We, we live out what Jesus has done for us. We live out the implications of the gospel powered by the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus tell his followers? He said, the world is going to know you by your love, by your love. Yeah. And so we've been in this series on, that we've been calling Boundless. It's kind of this mini series within the larger series of Romans. We're going to continue going on in Romans. Two weeks ago, if you missed, we were talking about boundless serving. And Paul started out in Romans chapter 12 talking about serving and, and the way God has given us gifts uh, to um, unique gifts. He's wired us in unique ways to contribute to the expansion of his kingdom in, in this Jesus movement. And um, you can still take a, the gifts assessment online. Uh, there's there's a, a number you can text. It's in your bulletin. Or you can fill out the little card that's there. Uh, that's ongoing. Last week, we talked about um, boundless giving. And uh, Mark Myfair gave us three principles. It's excellent super concise message on how and what it means and why we're called to give of our time, talents, uh, and treasure. And we were, we were presented with this tithe challenge. So if you missed that, catch it on the podcast. You can just listen to it uh, you know, on your drive to and from work. Um, but we, and we've been just so, so amazed and so grateful just the response we've been having so far. And so we want to continue that. Uh, and just invite you to take a step into this boundless living. And today we're going to focus on love. So what we're going to do is we're going to survey Romans chapters 12 and 13, where Paul is describing this boundless love of Christ and showing us how we as believers can like embody that love, like the, this other-centered love, not a me-focused love, but other-centered love which is gonna change the world, which is part of our mission statement here at Door Creek Church. So it's a huge chunk of scripture. It has implications for our relationships with each other, our relationships with outsiders like non-Christians, our relationships uh, to government leaders, all of these things, and we're not gonna be able to focus on all of that stuff because it's just too much. Uh, but what we are gonna do is try to highlight three characteristics of boundless love, and here they are. Boundless love fights evil with good, turns strangers into family, and turns enemies into friends. All right, should we dive in? Here we go, Romans chapter 12, verse nine, uh, talking about how boundless love fights evil with good. Okay, so love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Wait, hate? I thought we were talking about love. This is weird, right? Uh, why are we talking about hate? Well, first notice that it says here, uh, hate what is evil, not who. It's kind of important. So this isn't about dehumanizing people and, and coercing people who we think do evil things into be, being more like us. No, it's not about that at all. But apparently, in Paul's mind, which is a reflection of God's mind as he's inspired to write this, apparently hatred of evil is a litmus test of real love, of boundless love. 
Like, there are things in the world that because of love that should incite us to hatred and anger. Like, if you've been watching the news this week, it's every week, there's something new. Uh, so dozens of, of Muslims were gunned down at Friday prayer in their mosque by a white supremacist. Like, I don't care what you believe or what side, like what religion you adhere to, like that should make us angry because it makes God angry. You hear what I'm saying? Like I can't say I love my daughter if uh, I'm, I, I'm okay with a parade of selfish boys coming in and just using her and abusing her. Like that's not love. God's love and his justice go hand in hand. Love without justice is just this weak, sentimentality, it's like the, the Disney gospel. Just do whatever you feel like doing and that's gonna be okay no matter what. No, that is not love. And Paul picks up on this uh, in Romans 13, so let's skip ahead. We're gonna come back to chapter 12, but Romans 13 verse 12, it says here, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So what do you put armor on for? For, for battle, for war, right? You don't put Kevlar on and go to a hug fest, right? Uh, love, Christian love, boundless love is not unicorns and rainbows. It's, it's a fight. It's a fight. Like, why are we loving? Like, why? This is really important. Why is God calling us to love? Well, it's because there's a battle going on between day and night, darkness and light. So when Paul uses this day and night language, he's really talking about two levels. So first of all, so let, let's just pretend we're the original audience, we're reading the scroll, we're, you know, someone's sitting up front, we're all in this little house church, and he's talking about day and night. So we understand, as first century Romans, that night means darkness, we don't have electricity, and darkness means danger. That's when the robbers come out. They don't come out of the daytime, they come out at night. Uh, night is when people get wasted and do terrible things that they would never do when they knew that people were watching them. So that's one level of day and night. But there's another level. So when you read Paul writing about day and night, what he's talking about is this coming of a new age that is, is not gonna be characterized by evil and injustice, injustice but it's characterized by, uh, by justice and dignity and goodness. It's this time when Jesus returns, not as a weak man dying on a cross or a baby in a manger, but as a warrior king to purge evil forever from his creation. It's a day that we all want, but we all are terrified of. That's what he's talking about here. And in the Bible, it's described in lots of different ways, but they're basically talking about the same thing. It, when you hear the phrase kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, the new age, that's, that's what he's talking about. So the world, what Paul is saying here is the world is divided up. You've got citizens of the night who do night stuff and citizens of the day who do day stuff. And there's a battle going on. Verse 13, Paul goes on. He says, let us behave decently as in the daytime not in carousing and drunkenness or sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. That's, that's all night citizenship stuff. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. 
Paul says it in another way in in, uh, chapter 12, verse 21. He says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in light of that, what is boundless love? Boundless love is the weapon. That's the way citizens of this coming age, characterized by the, the authority and the power of Jesus, it's how we subvert the power of darkness. It's, the fight's not gonna be won through the weapons of darkness. It's not gonna be won through like uh, the power brokers and the spin doctors. It's gonna be won through tangible acts of kindness given to people who don't deserve it. Okay? So, there we go. Uh, boundless love fights evil with good. So let's go to the second one. Boundless love turns strangers into family. So we're gonna go back to Romans 12, verse 10. I'll give you a second. So it says here, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Whew, that's quite a list. Okay, so uh, we are first century Roman Christians, okay? We're sitting in the house church. We're hearing this for the first time, read as like a publicly read letter. What are we feeling right now? Well, first of all, this is like in poetic form. So this is in, kind of, the English doesn't translate it that way, but it's, it's a, a love poem, basically. And what are we feeling? We're feeling kind of offended. Kind of like, this is really hard, what you're asking us to do, Paul. But we're also feeling like, yeah, this is what we need to hear. Because what's happening uh, in, in the Roman church. Well, uh, little quiz. Um, who were the first Christians in Rome? Like, what was their background? If you don't know, it's okay. Uh, so, Jews. Jews were the first Christians in Rome. Probably what happened is they came to faith in Jesus uh, in Jerusalem while they were visiting, and when Pentecost happened, they heard Peter's sermon, the first, like, evangelistic Christian sermon and they came to faith and they took the message to Rome and they started planting these little uh, little like Jesus communities. There were just these little house churches. Five, six, maybe ten people gathering in homes centered around the teachings of Jesus. And what happened? Well, over the years uh, this movement kind of grew and non-Jewish people started trickling in. If you read the Bible, these non-Jewish people are called Gentiles. Right? That's what most of us are. I don't recommend you calling people Gentiles out in the world because I'd be like, what does that mean? Um, so something happened though. In AD 41, the Emperor Claudius issued an edict that kicked the Jews out of Rome. Every Jew had to uproot their lives, leave their homes, leave their businesses, and move out without provocation. So who's left to run the church in Rome? Gentiles, non-Jews, right? 
And so these, these Gentile believers who had just recently come to faith had to figure out how to care for the church and how to, how to like, apply the, the teachings of Jesus to this, this life that they were living. And they grew, they grew as leaders, but they, they did it in a very different way than their Jewish brothers and sisters because they weren't thinking about things that, that good Jews were thinking about, like synagogue and circumcising their babies after, after eight days and keeping kosher laws and uh, following Torah, the Old Testament. And so after uh, Claudius died, the edict expired, the Jews came back into Rome, about three years went by, and they tried to re-enter their churches, but they were like, what did you do to our church, right? Don't you know you have to be circumcised to follow Christ? Like that is the covenant symbol. And all of these things, like you're, you're eating that? Like that's so wrong. And so these fights were breaking out. And they were bickering and they were one-upping each other. Each camp, they were arguing about who were the real Christ followers. And they were drawing these lines. They were saying, we're in because of this and you're out. And both groups were doing that to each other. So what's Paul doing? He's redrawing the boundary. And what he's saying here is that, look, every believer, no matter where you come from or what your background is, you've been invited into this thing. You were an outsider. You've been invited into community and relationship with Jesus. And that is the posture you're to have with other people, toward other believers. And interestingly, let's look at verse 10. Uh, He says, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. So we don't really catch it in English because our words don't work this way. But what the words that Paul is using here are normally only used to describe relationships between family members. This is like family love words that he's using, but he's applying them to non-family relationships. Whoa, that's crazy. It's crazy. This is the only place in ancient Jewish or ancient Greek literature that, that this happens, in or out of the Bible. And what, what is family? Family is that group of people with whom you uniquely share just a couple things that you don't share with anyone else. Share your DNA. You share like some quirks. You share a home. You share body parts. Like this is a Thompson nose. When some from the time I was three years old, I'd walk by and people who didn't even know me were like, "That's a Thompson." <laughs> They'd see my nose enter the room ten minutes before I did. It's family, right? So the point is, when you and I start to identify with Jesus, all of those normal boundaries that that normally divide us, they fall. And we take on a new family name. And we're asked to draw a much, much wider boundary because we're all part of this together. Same team, right? So when I hurt, you hurt. When I win, you win. There's no friendly fire in family. So uh, sometimes we get after our kids because it feels like they're always like ah, bickering, you know? Uh, and sometimes when we do that, our kids are like, so did you ever, like did your parents ever get on you for arguing? And I realized that I actually got off the hook a lot because my brother's deaf. Uh, so we would argue, but we would argue in sign language. We'd be like, and my parents would be in the living room and we'd be like fighting 
sign yelling like in the kitchen and they wouldn't even know. It was great. Uh, that's, it's one of the advantages you have if, if you are deaf or if your sibling is deaf. Anyway, this isn't about avoiding all squabbles, right? Because we're still gonna, we're still gonna have squabbles. This is about the ground rules and how do we deal with those, those things. And we step into each other's worlds as each other's safety nets when there's need. Like that's what family does. So as we speak right now at, at our house, there's a, a life group um, from our church, all the guys in the group are there building a ramp. Um, so my son Silas, he's 11 years old, I've talked about him before. Um, in, next Monday, we're, we're going to St. Paul. He's gonna have a pretty major surgery that's gonna keep him in a wheelchair for about six weeks. And, and like at our house, it's just steps to every door so that we're not super ADA friendly. And so these guys are, they're just like, can we build a ramp for you? So he can get in and out of the house in a wheelchair. Amazing, amazing. And as a pastor, we get to see this kind of stuff happen all the time. So way to go, Door Creek. Thank you. Thank you for loving each other so well. It's, it's amazing to, to see. Another really practical way this is expressed and something Paul highlights is, is through hospitality. So I think for a lot of us, what hospitality means is something different than what it means in scripture. So when you and I, like you're having someone over for dinner and it's about two or three hours before they're coming, what are you thinking at that moment? What are you doing? You're thinking about where are all the rooms that these guests are going to see because I need to make sure that those rooms are clean, right? <laughs> Who cares what the rest of the house looks like? Am I lying? No, this is true. Uh, so you're like scrubbing away every, every like, uh, trace of human activity in those rooms that they'll see and you're shoving, well this is what we do, we like shove toys under the bed and uh, we take the pile of mail, who knows how old that is and the garage door opener with the battery that has been dead for a year and we put it in the junk drawer, that's why we have those and we're like hey, come on in, we're perfect, right? <laughs> and we feel like we need to hide our real lives from people before we can invite them in but that's not what hospitality is. Hospitality isn't about trying to impress people with our hospitality, and that's about us. It's about welcoming people into our lives, even though sometimes it's inconvenient and expensive and maybe a little embarrassing. Uh, hospitality, the Greek word phylogenia, literally means the love of strangers. That's what Jesus does for us. All right, number three, boundless love turns enemies into friends. So verse 17 of, of chapter 12, it says, uh, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, so let's step into our first century Roman Christian shoes again. So what is, how are we hearing this? Uh, well, as, as Christians in first century Rome, we're facing opposition from all sides, all sides. Uh, we have like the, the overpaid thought leaders doing TED Talks uh, on, up on Mars Hill and the Areopagus bashing us, calling us cannibals, accusing us of all sorts of atrocities that we were not doing. We've got emperors who are kicking half of us out for no reason. Uh, we've got um, heavy, heavy taxation, funding an imperial like expansion, you know, battles all over the world that we don't even get any benefit from. Our taxes are paying for palaces for people who are sacrificing to like animals and, and even their children to these idols and crazy, crazy stuff. And, and then even within the church, we have these, the, these explosions of bickering over who is right, Jew or Gentile, all of these kinds of issues. And so the question Paul's trying to get them and us, I think, to, to ask is how do we treat people who have a radically different vision for the world than we do? Like, what do you do with someone who thinks that you are the problem and if they can just get rid of you or silence you or shame you, then the world is gonna be a better place? That hits kind of close to home, doesn't it? So, this message, I think, is getting straight to the heart. I think of what it means to identify with Jesus, and I don't know if, as we're reading this, if, if any of it sounds familiar, but Paul's actually taking, he's pulling directly from some of Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5. Like Matthew was like, or uh, Jesus was going, you know that Roman guard who hits you on the face without provocation? Yeah, don't fight back. Um, actually turn the other cheek. Like let him continue to unload on, on you until he's exhausted his rage. Love your enemy. That's one of the hardest things. I, I, don't, I can't think of anything more difficult, more, more of an obstacle to living out faith in Jesus than loving our enemies, like loving the people who are hurting us, hurting our children, defaming people that we love. Who is your enemy? Like, who, like, what's their name, you know? I think for some of us, that's a really easy question to answer because there have been people in your life who have used their power and their authority, their position maybe to, to hurt you. Sometimes over and over again for a long time. So you know, you know who your enemy is. And your life has been about repeatedly bringing that pain to the cross and journeying through forgiveness and, and grace and that has been really painful, but hopefully really beautiful. But think, I think for a lot of us, we can't really name an enemy. I mean, there's like the person who we're driving and they cut us off and we're like, ah, for a minute and then we see the bumper sticker and we're like, oh, that makes sense, you know? <laughs> totally expected that. But this command is like to love 
like, is that my enemy? Am I supposed to love them? Like, I follow them to their home and like, like give them a Subway sandwich. I'm like, here you go. Like, I, I don't think that's the way it works. No, I think, I think we're meant to think of people and name enemies that are actually really up close, but sometimes we're afraid to admit that they're an enemy because we don't want to have enemies. We're too polite for that. So let me, let me just put it this way. Um, who, who is stopping the world from becoming the way you think it should be? Like, uh, for a lot of us, enemies aren't people that we want to kill or put in prison, but we will have really harsh, one-sided, imaginary conversations with them on our commutes or when we're taking a shower or whatever. Like, maybe, is, could that be your enemy? And that could be anyone. It could be a spouse. It could be a boss. Someone that you know with a really different political agenda that you're like, I'm not talking about that with them. Because the command here is not to, not to love and bless and pray for some hypothetical person. No, we're called to bless and pray for and be kind to a real person with a name and show them tangible kindness. And loving someone, loving an enemy boundlessly means that we have to resist the temptation to just avoid them and push them away and maybe actually bring them close. Close enough to show tangible kindness. And Paul gives us this really powerful uh, word picture, but he hyperlinks back to Proverbs 21, and he says, um, he says, this is like pouring hot coals on their head. And this is not about hurting them. It's not about doing them damage. It's about killing them with kindness. Like, have you ever been on the other side of that, and someone has done something so kind it's almost like they, they could read your thoughts and they knew exactly how to show kindness to you and you had nothing to say in response. That's what we're called to do, but it's really hard. I would say impossible to do. But that's what Jesus has done for us. So earlier in this letter to the Romans, Paul wrote um, in chapter five, verse eight, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after you get your stuff together, Christ might die for you. No, no, no. It's like while we were actively unleashing our selfishness and our pride and our stupid words and, and basically vandalizing his, his creation, that's when he died for us. And I don't think we can love boundlessly until we've been seared by his love for us. I don't think we can. We can for a little while. We're gonna run out of steam really quickly. And all of this instruction about loving others and especially about loving our enemies is just, I think it's just kind of weak, emotion-based, idealistic rhetoric until we realize that love is a person. Love is a person and the person is Jesus. And Jesus fights evil with good and he turns strangers into family and he turns enemies into friends and he reaches down and he lifts up the weak and the oppressed and the lowly and he brings us all into peace and justice and he invites us to start living like a new day is dawning. 
And some of us, I think, we've been working really hard doing a lot of things that look like love, but are actually counterfeits. And you know that they're counterfeits because you're tired and you're not sure how much longer you can keep going. I think for a lot of us, we just need to stop, just pause, and we need to consider the statement that Jesus is making as he hangs on the cross. Like, what is he saying as he's hanging there? Is he saying, I'm mostly disappointed in you. Is he saying, you need to love and, and work harder and do better because right now you're failing? Is he saying, look at what you've done to me. How could you be so stupid? I don't think he's saying that at all. I think what he's saying is that he's not mostly disappointed in us. He's saying, this is how much friendship with you means to me. This is what you're worth to me. I love you. We just need to take a moment and let the hot coals of his kindness burn us. We need to let it burn away our sin and our rebellion and all the ways we've rejected God. But I think we also need to let it burn away the ways we have been trying to counterfeit love out of guilt, out of obligation, out of what will people think of me and I don't want to be a failure. And let, just let him love us. He's inviting us to his table. He's cleared out a space for us. And he says, come, let's be together. Talk to me. And I don't know, I mean, if, if that's where you are, then, then maybe just for the last few minutes of our time together, just kind of turn off your brain and just sit there at the cross. And God might be wanting to do a work in you right now. Um, for those of you who have walked through that part of your journey already, um, we're just going to uh, try to give a few practical steps and, on what like, stepping into boundless love uh, looks like. But it starts with, with this, and we, we read this in 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. So we need to rest there, and if that's you, just ignore me for the rest of our time together. So what's gonna happen as, as we wrap up? Uh, you're gonna walk out of these doors and maybe be a little inspired and like, ah, I'm gonna love and armor and ah. And um, you're gonna leave here as kind of an empowered citizen of this new day that's coming. But what you're gonna encounter out there is darkness and a really powerful darkness. And you're gonna realize that your capacity to fight that is actually quite small. It's not limitless, and your resources aren't limitless, and that's okay. And you will not read in scripture anywhere uh, that Jesus calls us to love everyone. You are not supposed to love everyone. That's, at least that's not in the Bible. You can't. That's God's job. We have a capacity, and we have, we have limits. 
God's, God's job is to love everyone. It's not our job, so just, just get rid of that weight. But what has he called us to? Well, he's put us in, in spheres of relationship where there are already people in place uh, that he's called us to love and to love well, to reflect day into the night, to push back the darkness. So here's what this looks like. I'm just gonna, instead of like telling you, uh, I just have this really great example, I think, of a, a dear friend of ours uh, from, from Reno. So I met this person um, at, at work. So I had just started my job as a children's pastor in Reno, Nevada. And I was in one of my first staff meetings. We're sitting around these white plastic tables uh, with their laptops on the tables. And it was kind of like this grayish color, you know, and business as usual. And suddenly we hear this laughter in the, the room next to us. And it was like really loud. It's almost like they were in the room with us. It was like party level loud. And I turned around and looked and it was like 10 o'clock of the day. Like what is happening here? No one in the staff meeting even reacted. They're like, oh, that's the widow's group. It's like, widow's group? Like, I need a new category for widows because that does not fit. So after our meeting, I walked by and I saw this and it's these just lovely, mostly elderly women, some younger, eating and joking and laughing together. And uh, then I met the leader of this, this group. Her name is Emily. And Emily is the kind of person who, uh, yeah, she's just kind of all out there. So she, she is one of these people who really never complains and she's always thinking about you and how you're doing and you, you know, she's like, how are you? And you're like, I'm good, how are you? But before you can get the word out, she's like, well, how's this and how's that? And she's like digging into you and you're like, oh, I just can't handle the love. You know what I'm saying? Like you have that person in your life, you should. Everyone should have an Emily. Um, so she was 70 years old. She had never led a ministry in her life, her husband, who she dearly loved, they've been Christ followers her whole lives, passed away two years before. And some of her friends came and said, let's start a widow's group. And so they call themselves widows with a purpose. And what they do is when they hear of someone who's been widowed, they put together a care basket and they send it to them. And then they, they take turns writing handwritten notes to this person every single month for a year just to encourage them and invite them into this community of Jesus-loving, joke-telling widows. So uh, she was 70 when she started that. That was 14 years ago. When Emily was a spry 78, uh, she met the leader of an organization in Reno, Nevada, uh, who, like what they do is they, um, they take young girls uh, who are trying to get out of basically sex slavery, human trafficking, um, who are under the power and oppression of, of very powerful pimps who will hurt them, uh, and they, they take them out of that secretly with, with police and the FBI, and then they, they surround them with Christian community and try to help them start a new life, basically. Uh, and so Emily heard about this, and she was compelled, and she walked up to the leader of this ministry. Her, her name was Melissa, and she said, I want to help I'm kind of old, I don't know what I can do. Maybe I can like make cookies or pray or something. And Melissa said, well, let's, let's see. And so what's happened is the last six years, Emily has, has gotten to know dozens of these girls and she's become like an adopted grandma. 
She gets calls sometimes in the middle of the night. And so there's this 84-year-old woman who goes to the seediest places of Reno and picks up these girls to bring them to the doctor or to the police. And she's like grandma to them. And every Easter and every Thanksgiving, she ha- except for this last Thanksgiving because Emily had knee surgery, uh, but she's, uh, she's had them over for dinner, like dozens of these girls in her tiny condo, just all squished together, uh, feasting, enjoying fellowship and enjoying Jesus. So, so there you go. I mean, there's kind of, um, there's an example. Now, Emily's don't happen overnight. I think uh, like this great story, maybe inspiring. She was 70 years old, okay, when she got started. So this is a slow process and that's okay. Um, I think for most of us, we need to start with who has God put in my life right now. For my wife and I, it's our kids and each other. It's like sometimes these little humans take a lot out of us. And uh, I have to remember when I'm tucking them in to bed or getting the third glass of water, I was like, dude, you're 11 years old. Get your own water. <laughs> like, no, actually, actually this love that I'm showing, like I'm actually reflecting Jesus. I'm pushing back a little bit of darkness. I think a lot of us just need a new vision for the relationships and the things that we already have, the things we're already doing. So I want to encourage you with that. Um, if you want just a super practical step, like I said, we've had a great response with these so far. It's just this little thing you can tear off. Uh, and something about like signaling, like I want to do this, uh, that, that triggers an actual like response. So I would encourage you to, to do that. You can drop this in one of the baskets on your way out. Um, you can also catch up on, on the last couple weeks, find out about the tithing challenge serving challenge, take a gifts assessment online. Uh, You can also text um, the number that's there. It's also on the screen here and it'll just get emailed to your phone so you can do it like after lunch. But let's pray. Father, you are so good to us and you love us. Um, And Lord, I pray that that love would not result in, in feelings of shame and inadequacy, but actually that it would lift us up and empower us. Lord, thank you that we're not alone in this journey, that we have each other, uh, and that we have your spirit. Uh, Lord, I pray that that not a single person would leave this room thinking, I need to do better, try harder, do more. But Lord, that we would leave here with your wind and our sails, um, ready, ready to see small ways you've invited us to bring day into night. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.